This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Robin Minotti, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you for having me, Jim. Are we in a war? Well, we definitely are in, um, I would say, a number of different wars, and maybe we can uh, talk about just a few of them today. Um, well, the, the first war that I'll get to, um, I'll get to quite quickly now, but I wanted to get there through doing something which I haven't really done so much yet. I haven't really said who I am or who I was professionally, where, where I started from and how I got to um, thinking the way that I am. So I thought I'd just give a very brief introduction. So my name is Robin Monotti Grazzede. I've been involved for now about 30 years in architecture and architectural education, including urbanism. Uh, and recently moved on to different forms of art. But if I, if I say uh, very briefly about what I have experienced in that journey in um, architectural education, I could begin with a sort of short anecdote, which is one day my, my kid came back from school and overall he was terrified about the whole stories that um, he was taught about the environment, about raising rising sea levels, um, global warming, and all of these things. And I could see this kid was terrified. And I thought I'd, I'd tell him something. I'd say, and I told him, look, when I started getting involved in architectural education, and now we're talking about 30 years ago, I remember very clearly predictions made 30 years ago saying, in 10 years' time, all of this land will be underwater. The same predictions were made 10 years later, that's 20 years ago, in 10 years' time, all this land will be under, underwater. And this, the same predictions are being made now. In, by 2030, if we don't do X and Y, all of these lands, all of these cities, all of these will be all underwater. And so why I want to say that is because actually it worked. When he heard his dad saying to him, look, I've heard all of this before, it hasn't happened. So why should it be different this time? Uh, he felt a lot better because he thought, well, if my dad has heard it 30 years ago and it hasn't happened, maybe this narrative is not correct. Um, so that's, that's to give a, a short introduction to the fact that I arrived at this after many years of listening to scientific uh, predictions and, and, and models um, that never really became true. Um, what, what my angle was about all of this, when we, when we saw, uh, and I was, I was already, um, I think I was already teaching by then, I was a lecturer at uh, London Metropolitan University teaching architecture to postgraduate students, we started seeing um, quite a strong onslaught of the so-called green environmentalist uh, narrative coming in. It, has, it had always been there, and I was always interested in it. But at some stage, we saw it coming in quite aggressively. Uh, but what, what I noticed personally is that 
the arguments that were being, were being made were focused on the amount of energy that was used in the construction of buildings. So a steel building will use a lot of energy because it takes a lot of energy to make steel that makes a lot of, of sort of um, um, carbon uh, emissions and so on and so forth. Now, my angle there was something that we called in my um, in our teaching group, which was done with, with someone called Rick Nies, and it was called Diploma Unit 2. It was cultural sustainability rather than environmental. And why we did that? Because the thinking was, look, you can, you can get all your calculators out, calculate all of the energy that you're using to construct your buildings. Um, and you can do have this competition about who uses less. But if it's going to be knocked down, in one, two, three, four, five years time, because people don't like it, or because there's a financial interest that says that kind of building gets knocked down. All of that is irrelevant. And my example is, for example, coming from Rome, the buildings in Rome, let's say the Pantheon. It's been standing there for thousands of years. Now it would be called a concrete building. It's sort of Roman cement, ash cement with bricks. Now, the amount of energy in that construction would be pretty big. But if you divide it by the amount of years that it lasts, you know, thousands of years, it's not the energy used in its construction becomes irrelevant. So the point is, and I think here I'm going to make a link to the situation we're at now. If something is not culturally sustainable, it's not going to last. Therefore, some of these buildings that may use very little energy, if they're, to, to be very blunt, if they're, if they're ugly, it doesn't matter how much energy they use. They're going to be knocked down. People sooner or later are going to say, say, look, that building is weak. It's ugly. It's been standing there for five years. We want to get rid of it. It's not going to be listed. It's not going to be protected. It's going to go. The same situation that we're looking at now is the question becomes, how sustainable is it? And this, we get a different answer in different societies. And that's where I think that um, this approach that, that we are under, which is a very generic approach, here's your scary virus, wear your mask, do your lockdown, take this, uh, everyone takes the same injections. Um, in some places, that may actually stick. They may be ready for the social credit score, for the apps to go in anywhere, for the surveillance. Other places, which culturally have been formed through belief in freedom, um, a belief in human rights, a belief of in ind individuality, that may not stick as well. And I think we are seeing that now, the difference between, let's say, Germany and certain states in the US, I think is, the, is one of the bigger um, extremes. Or we can get Africa, maybe not South Africa, but other countries in Africa in which I think a lot of this has been totally ignored by the population. And why? Because there's a history of basically, you know, being um, abused at a, yes. at a financial level from Western uh, oligarchic interests. So they can see it a mile away. So that's, that's where I made a link between the cultural sustainability of environmentally focused architecture and cultural sustainability of the restrictions here. 
And I think because that, I think that's an area that I think they will fail at. I think there will be some places that will fight a lot harder than others. And because in those places, I think the culture is not ready for what they're trying to impose. It's, it's come too early. Um, so when it comes to your question about war, uh, coming back to my own um, original architectural uh, experiences at, uh, in academia, um, Smedley but Butler said war is a racket, and I would say, well, the war on, on the so-called war on carbon is a racket. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, the, the the answer I gave, which is, look, if something is not cultural, sus culturally sustainable, it does not matter. All your put your calculators away. All all your calculations do not ma matter. What matters is if it's culturally sustainable. So you need to look mm -hmm. at history. You know, look, you need to look at the traditions of the buildings in that place, the use of the buildings, and you you need to fulfill the requirement at that level. And it needs to to look beautiful to the people that are there, because obviously beauty is relative to to culture. Yes. Um, and therefore, the answer I gave was pretty much only understood by very few people, because everyone else did not want to understand that. They all they wanted to see was the answer about so-called renewable energy, as if there really is any such thing, which I highly doubt. And the other answer was the sort of uh, carbon credit direction. And, and that's almost like that was imposed from above. The answer that we gave, which is cultural sustainability, is the most important answer, was pretty much um, ignored at, uh, at the academic level as being the wrong answer. Just, just quickly, can I can I throw in a comment? The UN refers to it as a sustainable development. Is that right? Yeah. Um, well, that's where there's you know sustainable became a sort of sustainable yeah. wash word, which as long as you throw the word sustainable at something, suddenly it was politically correct. But there are different categories of sustainability. There's a financial sustainability. There's an environmental, and we introduced this category which we think is the most important actually which is the cultural uh, sustainability now fast forwarding uh, to where we're at now another level is the what um, are called the so-called smart cities that we are being uh, told that are the future of the, of the urban now to paraphrase um, a colleague who um, who's called Stefano Serafini who is the founder of the Society of Bio-Urbanism, and who actually, I believe, came up with the word bio-urbanism. Um, I'm paraphrasing, so this, these are my own words coming from, from his own slogan. And I would say, to be blunt, smart cities are for stupid inhabitants. Um, his version is a little bit more politically correct. Why do I say that? Um, well... Um, the question is, who does the smart city serve? You know, does it serve the, the inhabitant or does it serve someone else? Mm. Uh, and here, I, I'm, here I'm going to start to go into um, the, the, a quote of a book that also Serafini uh, recommends when it comes to this discussion, because I consulted with him. I said, you know, what areas do you think I should talk about? And he recommended um, I talk about Shusana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. 
which was incidentally recommended by Barack Obama in 2019. So what I'm talking about, Barack Obama, uh, apparently, if he, if he reads the books he recommends, uh, he would know. And so the question is, why has he been quiet uh, about this if he's read this book? But let me get, jump into this book. Um, Zubov introduces two categories. One is totalitarianism, which we kind of have talked about a lot recently. And the other one, which we maybe haven't talked about enough, is instrumentarianism. Now, totalitarianism was a, a political project that converged with, the, with economics to overwhelm, let's say, society. And it would get the, let's say, the citizen on all sorts of levels in which they really either believed it or had to believe it. And there was only one way. Whereas instrumentarianism, as, as described by Zubov, is a, is a market project that converges with the digital to achieve its own unique brand of social domination. So in a way, these instruments that we use, uh, being uh, smartphones, being apps, being Google, being Apple, being Facebook, Twitter, these instruments uh, start to mold us without we even really realizing that they're doing that. And that's called mm -hmm. instrumentarianism. So it's not as blatant as totalitarianism. You know, you don't have to wave some kind of flag with, you know, your totalitarian symbol and wear special clothes, maybe they black or, or red. You don't really have to do that. All you need to do is be using Facebook all the time and it will happen. You will be part of an instrumentarian society. Because what, what, how you're behaving is being, um, in a way, steered by someone else. So in, this, in the um, instrumentarian society, um, the smart, let's say the so-called smart machine, becomes a substitute for social relations. Um, and, you know, in a way, the lockdown is the perfect environment for that to happen. You know, with a lot of questions, you know, why did we have lockdowns? And we've had all sorts of layers of answers, which I think most of them are correct. But another layer is, is to hand over the triumph of instrumentarianism over social relations. Um, so what is, you know, the, to go a little bit deeper in the smart city issue, what is a smart, a smart, smart city? What is a truly smart city? Well, in, in theory, a truly smart city would be the opposite of what the politicians and the tech giants are telling us it is. Um, not a city of QR codes, of vaccine passports, of self-driving cars, but a city that would introduce certain elements of cultural sustainability that we then called, through Serafini's naming, we called bio-urbanism. And that's where I would like to go um, towards the, the end of this talk. But first, before we get there, um, it would be, um, you know, if we use the look at the word smart, it kind of means, it's meant to mean sort of intelligent, but intelligent in a way irrespective of the goal. So, you know, it could be, very intelligent, but you, your goal may ultimately be considered, let's in a word, evil. It may be about total domination of mankind. And you may be very smart, 
at, at um, and very intelligent at trying to achieve that, but it's not something that helps humanity. So maybe the shift should not be about smart cities, but it should be about wise cities. And here again, I am working from uh, Capernaum and Serafini's paper called Biourbanism as a new framework for smart cities, in which they argue that what we are told is the smart city is not smart and the real smart city should be a wise city. Um, and a city, when, when you use the word wise, you mean a human purpose, dignity, meaningfulness, despite smart technology, not through it. Because first of all, you know, technology is not neutral. It's not something that just sort of hovers and has no intent. It actually has an intent, and that's where the instrumentarianism aspect comes in. Um, smartness, so-called smartness, is not an innocent addition to the city. Um, the knowledge that it tries to, to bring into the city is data. So it's all about, you know, data which can be used to control and to make money from. Uh, whereas the knowledge that we are interested in, and that's why we're also talking today, is, is critical thinking. So on one side you've got data, and the other side you've got critical thinking. Um, so the, the, the smart city they're trying to force upon us is a city that does not encourage critical thinking. Um, and therefore action, hence, you know, self-driving cars, everything sort of managing, managing itself. But it really encourages only passive consum consumption, which is directed by um, someone else. But sorry, Robin, would you, would you consider that to be morally bad or is it just um, the, the result of evolutionary, well, technologically evolutionary processes? I mean, it's emergent or, or, or not? Well, the, the issue there is the dynamic of, uh, let's say, the sort of uh, dynamic of master and slave, in the sense that if the technology is used by a master somewhere else, maybe in a corporation, maybe, you know, it could even be at the UN, it could be at the World Health Organization, it could be at Facebook, in order to impose their own, and that's where we're going next, what are they trying to achieve with this? So in a way, I'm, I'm going to answer your question um, um, next in a slightly broader way. Um, but um, the, the next word is, you know, from cultural sustainability, there is a, a word that they describe, about, and it's called structural sustainability, which is a sustainability which overcomes mere standard ecological claims because the claims we get about what's green they they are very standard they're very basic and you know my beginning in in the architectural education and my continuation has always been it's not it's not that basic there's more to, more to it than those standard claims and the structural sustainability takes you into account all of the dimensions that are required to make an environment really human friendly and enhance the identity but coming to the answer of your question of, you know, this issue about, um, I think, you know, we go back to this issue about Shosanna Zubov and uh, surveillance capitalism. In this book, um, I recommend people to take a look at chapter 15, and it's called The Instrumentarian Collective. 
And here I'm going to say a name about someone who features in this book as the person with the ideas. And that's, that's the answer to your question there. And um, the name is Alex Pentland. And he's the director of the Human Dynamics Lab at MIT's Media Lab. This name features in this chapter 15 of the book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Now, what uh, transpires in this chapter? So why I'm saying this chapter is because these are not things that I have uh, come up with myself. These are things that, that Zubov has put black and white. So they are not theories, they're not conspiracy theories. They are part of a book which is also, by the way, recommended by Barack Obama. So, I, you know, you can't be accused of being, you know, uh, political party politics from another side, let's say. So this uh, Alex Pentman advises the World Economic Forum. Ever heard of it? <laughs> Google. And the UN Secretary General. So he's a sort of kind of personal advisor to, to these groups. He is funded by, or let's say the Human Dynamics Lab, but he's He's the director at, um, of, the, of this lab at MIT. Uh, he's funded by Google, Twitter, the European Union Commission, EU Commission, the US government, and the Chinese government. It's just a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> We haven't heard any of these uh, names or institutions in the last two years linked to anything that's happening. It's... Um, <laughs> Uh, so I'm the first person who, who, you know, I can break it to you that, that we never heard these names again. But what, what's interesting here is that what, how she calls what he's trying to do, and this is where it links to this, the title of the chapter called The Instrumentarian Collective, it's, it's called Social Physics. So this, I'm going to quote from her just a very brief uh, thing she writes. She says, Pentland understands instrumentarian society as a historical turning point comparable to the invention of the printing press or the internet. This new collective intelligence operates to serve the greater good. So this word that we may have heard recently, thrown out by people on the streets, by family members, so this word suddenly arrived out of nowhere. Well, this word has been carefully crafted uh, so this greater good, as we learn to act in a coordinated manner, some people would say lockstep, but coordinated manner, based on, and these, this is like very important, uh, what I read in these words, based on social universals. So what, what I'm getting at here is that what, what I read in this chapter and in these words is that there to sort of fast forward a lot and say what I think, I think there is a, an effort that is coordinated across these institutions that I mentioned um, to shift from what we know or knew of as human rights to a new concept called social universals. Now, Whereas we've created a body of human rights principles and laws after World War II, um, there, there clearly is a group of people who are renaming it as things like social universal. So 
I believe that there's a group of people who feel entitled to um, change all of what we know as human rights, effectively to strip them away from us. So, so that's, that's where I'm getting at in a way today and, and now, which is we can see it from the pure aspect of being told to wear a medical prevent, so-called preventive intervention on your face, like a mask. No one, no one is allowed to do that under the human rights we know uh, for something which has a comparable infe infection fatality rate to mm. a, a bad year of influenza initially, and by now through the variants that have weakened it, considerably less than influenza would be the fatality rate. If, you, if we look at Omicron, at this, you know, e even these recent um, information from South Africa, who people who who uh, Omicron? Oh, sorry, Omicron. Omicron. Yeah. yeah. Well, basically, it's sort of uh, it was ranked as sort of as a four out of ten in, in terms of the severity of flu by the people who were interviewed on the streets. And but you know, this is what we knew that this this is and this is what happens to the first SARS. Sooner or later, it disappears in the sense that the variants become more infectious and less less lethal. So there are no grounds to suspend human rights. They never have been because of this coronavirus, and they are not there. But there is an effort to suspend them, starting from the face mask. And that's why the face mask needs to be resisted. Not because it may or may not help, but because it is an indication that you are, on a societal level, almost willing to rewrite the law or the human rights law, saying everyone should wear it. Should wear it. Now, in a personal choice, it's fine because that's consent. But if you do not consent, you're not meant to have any disadvantage or prejudice mm. under Article 6 of the UNESCO Declaration of Bioethics and Human Rights. And that, um, that was from 2005. And this is an indication of how, much, how, how fast these, things, these changes have happened. And that obviously applies to injections. So the, the experimental genetic interventions that, that's that people falsely call, call vaccines um, are um, obviously also require informed consent. And if you refuse them, you should not have any disadvantage or prejudice. So that's a clear, all, all of that is a clear attack on the body of human rights that we carry uh, since World War II. Um, the other attack that is being clearly prepared is the one that links to what I witnessed as an architectural educator, which is a single view of what environmental sustainability is about, leading to this idea of carbon or carbon credits. And therefore, you have on one hand a vaccine passport, and on the other hand, ready to jump from that one, you have a carbon credit passport. Both are apps, both are linked to all your purchases, they need to be linked to all of them. They will measure what, how, how much carbon is used in whatever you buy and see the good or bad and you'll be taxed and certain things will be more expensive and you won't be able to travel if, if you don't offset them because then you have the whole market, which is totally fictitious of the so-called offset, that if you offset something, then and so it becomes its own, its own market and its own way of making money. Now... Uh, you uh, have had with uh, at your one of your uh, podcasts, you have had Professor Valentina Zarkova, which indicated almost a Copernican um, shift in our understanding of global warming, in the sense that to make to be very very brief, 
in the sense that what I understand that, that she proved scientifically is that relative to um, the Earth's orbit relative to the sun in, a, in the short term, because we knew this happens in the mm. long term, the short term, the sun is not in a fixed position relative to the orbit of the Earth. And therefore, you could say the sun moves. What, now, it's not really that the sun moves, but the, but the position between the orbits moves. And she calls it solar inertial motion. And therefore, her, her models prove, I would say prove until they disprove, that this uh, global warming is a short-term cycle now that mm. is going to go on for a few years. It's Maybe cyclical. right now. Yeah, it's cyclical, and, mm. and it should go on at least until two th- around 2100, and then there will be a, a, sh- a shorter cycle of cooling. So the idea that this that we, as little beings, if we change from our car and we all cycle, will suddenly change dramatically the temperature of the Earth, it's fundamentally not true, according to this model, because the heating can only really come from the sun, and any further proximity of the sun will make that difference in a few, de- in a few degrees of temperature to the Earth, whereas any more distant will make an equ- equivalent negative difference. So, so I came to this situation in March 2020, where I was working already um, independently with someone else who's part of the Telegram channel, which is called the Robin Monotti, Dr. Mike Eden, and Corey Morningstar Telegram, and it's at t.me forward slash Robin MG, which was called Corey Morningstar. And uh, Corey Morningstar wrote the manufacturing of Greta Thunberg. And um, it's quite a long expose that shows all the financial interests behind um, the, the people who promoted um, this girl, who I'm sure had, uh, may, probably still has all the best intentions, but uh, you know, there's there's a huge uh, machine behind her. Uh, so, so I was al- already in a state of trying to express that what we were being told about the environmental situation um, was not true from the point of view of the solutions. So the idea that the solution to the extinction of species was to reduce carbon, you know, that, you know, climate change was ne- has never been ranked as one or even the top five reasons for the species extinction. So that was totally off any scientific uh, scale of what the real reason of species extinction actually is. The solutions are for, given for carbon, which is carbon credits or sort of uh, hiding, hiding it sort of uh, underground through some kind of capture system, that was clearly not the solution that would make any difference. So the solutions were all wrong. So when this COVID came along and they said, stay at home, uh, don't go out, uh, don't treat it, you know, it was the same story again. There's a there's something which is projected uh, as a fear onto humanity and there are prepackaged um, fake solutions, which do not work, which are given because certain financial interests benefit from them on the level of um, of basically taking, shifting money from the public interest to the private interest. So there's basically a, a enormous amounts of money that gets transferred to private pockets, but also there's a huge element of control. So um, the going back to Pentland and the issue of the human rights and the social uh, universals, um, she also goes on to write, the main barriers are 
the main barriers to these social universals, right, are privacy concerns and the fact that we don't yet have any consensus around the trade-off between personal and social values. Um, the Zuboff writes, Pentland avoids the question, whose greater good are we really talking about here? And that's when what we, you know, we should, anyone says the greater good, the next question we have to throw at them is, whose greater good? And we kind of know whose greater good it is, because those are the people that censor us whenever we talk about them. Uh, so how, do, how, do you, how does the instrumentarian collective achieve this? Well, they use social pressure, the pressure to conform. Um, and that we can clearly see through Facebook. So the question is, you know, when people who analyzed Facebook, how it was used, what do people, what were people really proud about on Facebook? Well, they were proud about their holiday photos or going to travel to exotic destinations and, and all that. So the first thing to be removed in order for people to be confirmed is the ability to travel. Hence, all these borders being closed. The same thing recently in South Africa with, with the Omicron saying, you know, now we're going to close the, the airports. It's you know, clearly a punishment uh, because probably the quotas of vaccinations haven't been as high as they wanted to. And so there's a huge pressure on the yeah. government saying, you know, we're going to punish your tourism sector in prime tourism season now yeah. until you go really harsh on your vaccine passports, on your sort of, you know, uh, compliance with the police or whatever you're going to do, you have to do it now, right? I think so too, yes. Um so the social physics, which is how they call it, approach to getting everyone to cooperate to Pentland's greater good is social network incentives. You know, like, for example, the, the issue about the likes, the reposts. Yeah, the likes. Um, all, they, they create some kind of you know, dopamine uh, little uh, hits. And, and so you kind of want to, people want to be liked. So they'll put something out. You know, if I put something out against lockdown, in 2020, I didn't get many likes at the time. So, you know, anyone and people put their photo with themselves, you know, getting jabbed, as they call it, and they would get a lot of likes at the beginning. So there's a sense of these kind of social incentives. And they clearly say that they can leverage these exchanges to generate social press, pressure for change. But the, what people have to understand is that there's a clear design behind all of this. It's not neutral. Now, when they talk about change, again, the question is who's changed to benefit who and why? So Pentland subscribes to the label, according to well, homo imitants, instead of homo sapiens, homo imitants. So the ma man who imitates to convey that it is mimicry and not empathy um, and certainly not politics, which defines human existence. Um, so Pentland writes, the largest single factor driving adoption of new behaviors, so let's say the new normal, is the behavior of peers. Um, now, Zubov writes, um, tyranny is not a word that I choose lightly. Like the instrumentarian hive, tyranny is the obliteration of politics. Hannah Arendt observed that tyranny is a perversion of egalitarianism. So the greater good is a perversion, the, the, the one they're trying to force upon us is a perversion of egalitarianism because it, it treats all others as equally insignificant because it's not the greater good for us, fundamentally. It's a lie. 
so uh, overall I think that chapter is quite interesting. My critique about it, and I would like to link to um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s speech in Milan, which uh, is a very important speech, is that there are two schools of thought, and that's where sort of, for example, Serafini, who came up with the word of biourbanism, and I slightly accommodate at different angles. Some people believe that all of this is the inevitable, and this is coming back to your question, is the inevit inevitable result of what they call capitalism. I think this, you know, capitalism leads to this, and this is all capitalism doing it full stop. Um, now, my, you know, linking it back to the Kennedy, my brief answer to that in a slogan would be, would be, well, you know, capitalism elected John Fitzgerald Kennedy, but it was the CIA who killed him, according to what a lot of us believe. So capitalism only goes so far to do certain things. At some, some stages, it uses intelligence services, criminal organizations. Mm -hmm. So it basically starts to use organized crime with a hat of intelligence services in order to achieve certain highly specific goals. And, I, and instrumentarianism is a highly specific goal. So it is not, capitalism could potentially lead in a lot of different directions, especially if monopolies are broken up. And the question is, do you see a form of capitalism that is able to break up monopolies through certain legal intervention, anti-monopoly laws, or do you just see that as never being able to happen? So my, my, my critique would be that uh, she only uh, gives two pages to the CIA in this book, where I, I see almost in every line, I see, you know, the, how did Facebook become so dominant? Why was Microsoft not broken up when Gates was on trial for monopoly? You know, so I think there are certain stages where certain key decisions could have been made and they were not. And I think that at that stage, there is an intervention uh, which is not necessarily legal or not necessarily according to the principles of capitalism. There is a monopolistic drive which uses all sorts of shady, shady measures. Now, now going to the camp of the people who are highly critical of, of, of capitalism, but still talking about architecture, I would like to mention someone else because here today I'm trying to give a talk from a slightly different angle. Simon Elmer from Architects for Social Housing in, in, in London. Uh, he is actually an art historian, hence he's, he's good at writing and, and, and an analyzing things, but he's part of an architecture collective. And so he, one of his latest books is, uh, is called Virtue and Terror, Resisting the UK by Security State. And he writes, not since January 1933, when the German bourgeoisie decided the best way to defeat communism and defeat and defend German capital was to appoint Adolf Hitler as chancellor, has there been such a historical failure of judgment in Europe? The bad faith shown by the middle classes in their opportunistic and almost universal collaboration with coronavirus justified programs and regulations merely confirms what history has already demonstrated, that when, Hit that when Hitler's in the Reichstag, Every coward wears a swastika. In an interview with Frieda Wiesel, uh, Elmer says, I think we are undoubtedly going through a revolution, which is what Kennedy would call a coup. 
Uh, I mean, these words are interchangeable according to different views of what a revolution and a coup is. Talking about the Industrial Revolution, um, Elmer writes, um, they had to drive a primarily rural population off of the land and into the cities to, to provide the workforce for the Industrial Revolution. And the only way they could really do that was to simply impoverish them so that the working classes had to go to the city. And why I ch chose this quote from his book is because something similar is happening now. Mm. There's a coordinated effort to impoverish a huge section of global society. Um, and that clearly happens through lockdowns and through restrictive uh, measures of, you know, certain curfews, certain, you know, you cannot open. You know, in Italy, there was a situation where restaurants had to shut at five and businesses couldn't operate in the evening or, you know. So there's a whole sorts of um, uh, strategies. Catherine Austin Fitz mentions a few more, which almost incentivize uh, urban rioting in uh, prime, potentially prime uh, urban locations in order to reduce property values, but in order to do that, they basically need to make a certain uh, a level degree of destruction of private businesses so that that business cannot really be sold off that, that easily because that area is now seen as a an area which is prone to, let's say, um, social instability. Yeah, she also refers to it as a coup. Yeah. Um, so, so on on a on a, on 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 a higher level, there is, a, let's say, a coup, a global coup, which uses certain institutions which have been hijacked through uh, fundamentally control of money. Um, on, on a different level, there, there is an impoverishment that tries to drag people towards certain instruments like universal basic income to become dependent on them because your business has to be shut down. Um, and all of these things kind of are helped by this instrumentarian tool, which ultimately goes back to um, something they could not have done before. You know, because if there was a lockdown before, people would be at home sort of turning their thumbs and in the space of two or three days, say, I'm going out, I'm going to sort of talk to people on the street. Whereas now you've got Netflix, you've got Facebook, you've got food delivery um, and also you had you had a direction a general direction of society which was leading to less and less fulfilling work for a lot of people and this desire to project um, a persona that is uh, worn out by you know striving for more and more um, material belongings to the benefit to the detriment of, of health so when we met, um, you know, this is coming to a close of the of the, this angle that I gave today, which is the angle of the smart city versus the biurban uh, collective. We came together. Funny enough, it was in 2019, a group of of us, and we decided to try and put down some principle principles of a biurban um, uh, agglomeration, which. Um, which you know you you could probably see them on on my website maybe i don't need to go through all of them um because maybe it does get slightly specific but i think to 
to cut a long story short, these principles or what we were looking at is a self, um, self sustainable, let's say, uh, urban agglomeration that could govern itself off the wider grid. So off the whole sort of, you know, Amazon uh, and network, energy networks, food production networks. We were looking at that. Um, and I even wrote a page, uh, the, uh, an article inspired by an Italian um, poet uh, and filmmaker called Pasolini um, and, uh, and inspired by a lecture of um, one of the people who was there. Uh, which was called green uh, green autarky in the sense of we called it uh, a way that you could become independent of all of these networks and that's becoming more and more relevant now so the model was that you get one of these um, maybe small to mid-sized towns with land still around it and if you are able to control even by renting out a, a big enough area of land around it you can grow your food and uh, in this land near this this town and so the the project was and you know that we had different ideas of how big that land had to be and different systems of calculating it the project was to create this kind of urban situation which can be growing its own food using its own energy and using probably different systems of currency than fiat currency so barter systems and all these different systems so we were we were looking at all of that now what seems to be happening now is that for the people who don't want to go along with this ride of giving up your bodily autonomy to a regular injection of a genetic genetic experimental gene modification um, the avenues of being linked to the grid are being reduced in a coercive way so the vaccine passports, you, don't, you can't go to shops, you can't, you know, in Germany, you can't go to the market, and all of these are being reduced. Therefore, in a way, this accelerates this kind of thinking that we were in. Now, the, the power structures we are dealing with are so big that there is an argument that the head-on collision um, is not necessarily going to be fruitful for us in the short term. But, Having these ideas in mind, even just a word like bio-urbanism instead of the smart city, you know, which is about, in a way, um, well, I mean, I can, there's a whole list of what it's about, but it, it's, uh, I'd say point number four, it opposes the domination of techno sciences and favors art as knowledge and not as aesthetic entertainment. It builds peace, connection, mutual aid, it manages and rules itself, it's based on a local circular economy, and so on and so forth. Now, these things are becoming more and more relevant, and through a system which is, um, I don't know if you have it in, in, in uh, South Africa, you've got in Australia, you've got in, in, in England, which is called a stand in the park, like-minded people meet in their local park, because I think this kind of works at a local basis, and they find solutions to, to these potential issues, like the, the possible... Um, you know, overnight hyperinflation where currency it becomes mm. worthless. Uh, the, the possibility that you're not allowed to enter shops or, or markets. So the possibility of either growing food or finding wholesale retailers that, you know, some people are um, 
conscious they can buy food and actually distribute it to local people who may be, may be needing it. And so I think a parallel structure at this stage uh, is the form of resistance that is more yeah. likely to lead to a positive outcome than a full-on let's go and, you know, in a way serve them, which is, you know, let's go and you know, break a few windows of a few shops so that they're scared of us. No, they're not going to be scared of you if you do that. Actually, mm. you know, uh, either, either you are completely organized at a level that you've got very big um, elements of society backing you, and that would probably be the police, the military, the judiciary, or, you know, you're just going to be ignored. So you might as well create an alternative um, yeah. um, an alternative system that is the foundation of what I see as being the future. Maybe not the, the short term, but the mid to long term future. I see it as, as one in which we do not believe the top down centralized form of control, government and rule. Now, you may call it Facebook, you may call it European Union, you may call it CIA, you may call it Microsoft, uh, you may call it um, um, any of these things. But I think, we, we, I believe, we will come to see these as become obsolete. And the, the ob why they're obsolete is because what has happened and what is happening now is the, is the swan song of that system. It may even win in the short term. It will never fully win because there's enough of us that will resist. We may never fully win, but the, the belief, the societal belief that we give into the system, which is similar to what you do with fiat currencies, it's a system of belief. This will not last for, for so much longer because the lies ultimately will come out and enough of society who is not benefiting directly will say, enough of that system. The new system needs to be local. We need to know each other face to face, not just through, you know, clicking a button. And similar in elections, you know, how long can we believe an electoral system in which it's all done centrally and digitally? We've already lost a lot of belief through re recent events in digital elections. So there's almost, a, we almost need to find a different way, which is a face to face um, uh, bio-urban uh, way of living. That's 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 in a way kind of closes where I'm coming from. Uh, what happened after? Uh, what was happening in 2019, and what and what moved me also a little bit away from the architectural discourse is that mm. everything that I'm saying to you now, if I said it to someone in my in, in architectural academia, which I've been part of, I I would have say that it would be totally uh, seen as that's um, crazy. Yeah. And so I realized that, that my own truth, because this Definitely. is my own truth, my own truth had no outlet in the world, in the professional world I was living in, because no one would listen to it. And, mm. and me saying this, even if I wrote it in an article, even if I did a PhD, there would be another, you know, 300 PhD done in, in the old form of the uh, respected universities, which are funded by big capital, you know, Ivy League universities which would say the opposite. So it would be just one person against. And at that stage, I thought, well, there must be a different way to uh, affect uh, culture. And that's when I moved towards um, narrative uh, storytelling and, and cinema um, in the sense that if we can tell a story to more people in an artistic way, that may actually 
potentially have a slight cultural influence if people actually remember it. So it's not a newspaper because an article today will, will be forgotten in, in a few months' time. But something that could stay, so a work of art that could stay, you know, an, an architectural building can stay, but the interpretation can vary over time. And so something that is directly narrative. And that's when we um, encountered this story, which is about the history of medicine, the history of the doctor-patient relationship, based on a real um, case book of a doctor in, in the 18th century. Prussia. And we saw in that, in that story a moment of a shift of medicine from an empathic uh, two-way relationship, equal in a way relationship between doctor and, and, and patient, but equal to each other, but equal also to a wider network of historical understanding of, of you know, um, of a, a unified system from history of what healing rather than necessarily medicine, of what health was about, to a new moment that starts to happen then, and in a way the birth of modern medicine, which is the body as an object, and an isolated object, you know, like in the lockdown, an isolated object. So this process of isolation, uh, we saw it as happening in this particular moment of history of the West, and we, um, we decided to produce this story that was written about specifically this moment and how it plays today in a potential doctor-patient relationship where the doctor in a way tells the patient what to do. He says, you do this, you take that, take the injection, do that. It wasn't like that before and, and through this film called The Book of Vision, which was executively produced by, by Terence Malick, who also in his films has a, a bigger vision of the now, a vision that links it to the past links it to culture, links it to spirituality. Um, this, this idea of medicine that we have today, um, it's, it has some great things about it, some great technological advancement, but again we get into this issue of master and slave. You know, and I believe once you get into that issue that there is a dominant figure, you know, the doctor is the dominant figure over the patient. Why? Why can, it not, can they not be equal? Why can they not have a really good two-way relationship? And then the government takes on this, puts on this white robe, and the government starts to say, I am the doctor of everyone, and, and this is what I tell you to do. So what, what, what happened now is almost the, what was wrong in medicine on, on, on steroids, if I can put it that way, excuse the pun, but it's almost like, it was already wrong. It was already going in the wrong direction, this kind of hierarchical relationship. And it get, got even a lot, lot further. And, and that's, not, that's not a healthy relationship where a government tells an entire uh, generic population, do this, do that, wear a mask, stay at home, uh, use a vaccine. It's not healthy and it's not medicine. It's something totally different. So. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to uh, release it in UK um, cinema soon. We're coming close to a, to a theatrical distribution. It's got Charles Dance, who was in Game of Thrones, um, Sverre Goodnesson, who was in Borg McEnroe, and Lotte Verbeek, who was in Outlander and Borgia, and Isolde Duchauk, who was in Faust, the Russian Faust. And, you know, Faust is very much, in a way, a figure that, that hovers. Is almost Right now, there's almost like, 
a medical technological faust that's hovering all over us and is basically saying to people, you know, if you want to have your old normal, there's just a little um, a little, little signature that you need yeah. to put here in your genetically modified blood. And you're just going to have to put that and give your signature in that blood every six months, maybe every three months for the rest of your life. And then you can go off on your holiday like you did before. You can pretend everything is okay. And so many people in society have submitted to this Faustian path. It's so weird, hey? It's well, so strange. It's, I think we are creatures of habit. And mm. um, the, the so-called, how it's presented, it's that it's, it's the way out and you're going to, you know, it's the greater good and you play your part and you help everyone. And, and people genuinely believed that. And, and uh, fear can, can make people do all sorts of things, including believe that all sorts of, of, of um, absurdities. But when, we, when there is, going back to the issue about capitalism versus organized crime, a.k.a. the CIA, right. uh, the, 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 sense that, um, the sense that this was all happening because capitalism decided well how do how do all tv networks how do how do they all come up with the same story at the same time i remember the same happening in the run up to the iraq war it was exactly the same every single tv uh, station every single radio every single headline had you know saddam is has got you know uh, the weapons of mass destruction that can obliterate um, whatever city you're in, in uh, I can't remember, was it 45 minutes or 40 minutes? He, he pushes the button, he's the bridge, and he's going to do it unless we go in. Everyone said the same thing. Now, there is, there is clearly an, an ownership issue there, which we've got Vanguard, BlackRock, but there's clearly also an organization that is preventing anything else from happening. And this organization is linked to the intelligence services, and we had Albert Burla who admitted that uh, U.S. intelligence is, as he said, helping Pfizer. Now, that, that, if it was only capitalism, you wouldn't need an intelligence service to help a pharmaceutical company. They would just do it with their own money. Uh, so the moment you involve an intelligence service, it becomes transnational because these intelligence uh, agencies work with each other. Um, and uh, you also start to do things that uh, start to, to become violations of human rights. And that's where, the, the, when I talk about uh, organized crime, I mean an organized viol mass violation of human rights. So an organized mass crime against humanity fundamentally. And, you know, the stories that some of us um, suspected from the beginning about the, the funding in the labs that have led to a series of patents over 20 years, creating the spike protein, creating SARS of 2003. You know, the whole story of that is in itself, you know, um, if it's not disclosed in as, as a, a sort of, as a clear picture, it is a form of, of, of crime. The moment this gets out into the population, the way it's covered up, it's a crime because it was the attempt to cover it up by sending a, a WHO mission that was basically censoring anyone who said it may have a lab origin. That's another crime. Then the, the imposition of a lockdown when everyone in public health with any history knew that 
it's never been done before a lockdown for the healthy it's another crime you 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 you're sort of ruining people's psychology people leading them to bankruptcy suicide mental health issues so when i talk about organized crime i mean that that these are all of these are, are clearly criminal acts and the coordination is not simply because someone has a has a lot of money like uh, and says i'm going to coordinate it because they would probably be stopped by all sorts of other um, other people saying no, you cannot do that. But the moment that they they are not stopped, um, I think there is more than just money. And the people who end up being in these positions, um, I don't think end up there by accident. At some yeah. stage, there is a conversation that happens and says, "Look, you got to play a part in this great bigger picture." Um, so it's more complicated, I think, than just sort of doing what historically we have done which is point the finger and say oh it's capitalism full stop i think that there is there is a level of organization behind it and when we look and that's what you know that's what robert kennedy said you know he said you know when he said if you look at event 201 you know how why is the why is the sort of uh, avril himes of the cia there and why, why is she the first you know, appointment of the Biden administration and why was she there and all of those, you know, the CIA does not do public health, the CIA mm. global coup, coups. So why, why um, this is happening, there's all sorts of, of levels to it. But I think there is a degree of criminal organization uh, behind it. And I think that the, the, when we asked, asked uh, the question that you were asking, you know, it's almost baffling how many people believe the story. And, so, and we've, we always, uh, very often between ourselves, talk to you say, what is it about us? Why could we see through it? And why could, can all these people not see through it? And um, there, I think there's, there's all sorts of different answers, which I think are all true. There's not one more true than others. But one of the answers is it's a failure of the imagination to, to even be able to conceive that there is an organization that has been patenting these coronavirus for, for about 20 years that's been funded from the high levels of, of government and, and they have been collaborating across different countries to do this, not only one. There's been intelligence agencies involved, clearly if they're present at Event 201, which is funded by the Bill and G uh, Melinda Gates Foundation as well. So there are all of these things. And when you explain it to someone, someone will just switch off and say, no, conspiracy theory. But everything I've said now is actually in black and white. It's not, none of those things are, are, are theories, they're facts. And so the failure of imagination, the failure to believe that some, that's a crime of such a scale mm. can be committed in an organized global matter, manner using the organs of centralized power, because the World Health Organization is centralized power. Do we really need a centralized health organization? No. No. From my point of view, that the, the doctor-patient relationship is the primary thing that we should go back to, then we don't need one because we have local situations and in a local situation we can manage, let's say in, in Britain you have a national health service. Now, what's happened now is clearly that we have uh, plenty of evidence that drugs that suppress the respiratory system have been given to COVID patients at an early stage. And that's what led to the excess deaths. 
and they are called midazolam with other morphine-based drugs. And there's plenty of evidence of, you know, even uh, parliament discussions between ministers of saying we need to buy a lot more of this. And then we have protocols that have leaked and the amount that, that are given are pretty much lethal to someone who's got, you know, a, um, a respiratory viral respiratory infection that is not being treated because, you know, the issue is it's not being treated. So you don't treat it and you give a respiratory suppressant drug. This can only happen through a national health service. It can only happen through a central top-down control of someone in government who feeds a protocol to all the local health services. Now, we cannot have this as a future model, in my belief, either. We have to have local health services where people are locally accountable and where people make local decisions. And, and in a way, that's what happened. When I talk about the parallel structure, that's what happened in Italy when the 100 doctors through WhatsApp started WhatsApping each other, saying, look, I treated my patient, I gave mm. my patient you know, this antibiotic, I gave them this um, other, other medicine, I told, I'd given that, and it worked. You know, in the space of like three days, they went from serious respiratory infection to no, no uh, clinical symptoms um, of that scale any longer. And so this network had created itself as a parallel network to the Italian National Health Service, and, um, and the same thing needs to happen here. So I think the belief in a national health service, I think it's gone. We need to believe in local ones. The belief in a World Health Organization, I think it's gone. We don't need these institutions that can be hijacked and can do something that, that like has happened and is happening now. We just need a local uh, network where people are locally accountable. Because if someone does something, if someone does something that people have had family members that have gone to hospital uh, because they were scared, they never came out and very quickly they deteriorated and they were intubated when they didn't need to be intubated. Mm. Uh, and if something happens because of a local doctor, you actually can go and have a chat with them and you can say, look, what's happened? And they can, they can say, look, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, it, you know, it was a medical error. Uh, and, you know, we understand that. And, and in this local health service, we, we are never going to do it again. And we're, we're, we're so sorry that, that, you know, we made a huge mistake and, and they can issue some kind of information to, to people. But when, it's, when this is driven from the World Health Organization, it's going to a national health service, you cannot influence any of that. You cannot have any argument against any of that. So the doctor-patient relationship, the trust is gone. And the first principle, and this is something in a way that, that is addressed in, in our film, The Book of Vision, the first principle of healing of the doctor-patient relationship should really be about trust, and that and that human inter um, engagement. Yeah, and the, and the, a human engagement, a two-way human engagement, a relationship, yeah. a relationship in which no one suddenly says, "I am the person who dictates, who mandates what you should do, who orders you to do this." And it's and it's a celebration of the individual sovereignty once again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in relation to others, you know, individual uh, sovereignty in relation to others, where the, you know, in a way the, where the truth is arrived at yep. through dialogue, through interaction, through physical presence, you know, none of this, uh, a doctor that tries to examine someone through a Zoom screen, how's that really going to work? You have to have a sense on all sorts of levels that you cannot get through a Zoom screen of, of, of the of, of that person, because that's how you learn how to react to them too. Um, 
I think this is the first conversation that I've ever done where I asked one question. <laughs> but I have one more question for you, Robin. In front yeah. of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Well, I see a long uh, struggle, um, but I see um, a, a, an alternative path that I think a lot of us were probably ready to tread on for many years. Um, and now we almost have no choice than to go in it, not only because we are forced upon it by others, but also because any s small level of belief that we may have had that the world as it was before was the best that it could have been, I think is gone for all of us. And so I think we are aware that it has to be all different and we may be the pioneers of this. You know, we may be the first people who become part of this shift, which is not, as I was saying before, not towards what they want us to be, which is the, the dominated by the techno science, social physics, uh, top down greater good, removal of human rights, but is actually dominated by somewhat something else, which is about empathy, mutual aid, uh, physical presence, physicality. So, you know, limiting our exposure to that technology, you know, like some of us will go back to using um, phones with no internet or like I did for today, I wasn't reading off a screen. I had, you know, paper and a pen. Um, and so remembering that we don't have to go all the way where they're taking us. That doesn't mean I need to throw the, the smartphone, which I still have it, it's switched off. I don't have to throw it away, but this one is, is the one that's yeah. switched on now. So you, you exercise a choice. That doesn't mean, and you know, one, one, uh, one good example was one of, at some stage in our teaching, we always said to our students at the beginning, the first phase, said, don't use a computer, use a pencil, use paper. Don't use a computer, draw by hand. At some stage, we had a student that's, that was creating extremely beautiful drawings and we had a look at them and they looked like hand drawings. But when you got, look at them closer, you realize that it wasn't. It was a computer drawing that drew as beautifully as a hand drawing wow. because they had learned to master the technique. So the technique didn't dominate, the technology didn't dominate them. You didn't get this kind of um, generic computer-aided design image. You got a beautiful hand drawing that was done with, you know, with a, you know, with like a digital pen on a pad, but it all went through a computer, it was adapted, it was edited, but it became beautifully. So I think it's not necessarily about going back to the beginning of time when we didn't have any of that. It's just about not being dominated, I think, yeah. by these elements. Um, not being dominated by, unfortunately, you know, these things are highly addictive. So not be, by the addiction to Facebook, by the addiction to the amount of followers that you have on Twitter. And if you leave it, you know, in censoring a lot of people that you like, but you almost ignore it because, you know, if I leave it, then I'm going to lose, you know, X thousand followers to start again. So not being dominated by all of that, but you decide how and on what terms you're going to use this technology and you refuse to abide by this social physics instrumentarian 
molding that is all around us. And you say, no, I'm going to do it my way. And, and I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, I don't even need to argue anymore with people who want me to do this and that. You, know, you don't want me to go to that market. Okay, I'm not going to go. I'm going to go and meet my, uh, the people who see eye to eye with me through this parallel structure. We're going to find our own way of providing for each other. Where can people find out more? Well, um, I think for this that I'm talking about, I think that the, a stand in the park is a way to meet like-minded people. A stand in the park has got its own website. I can put it on Telegram. And that's a good start. And then splinter groups are creating of these stand in the park. So you go to one and they've got all sorts of other meetings where, where people who think alike. Um, I don't think we've and- got something like that in South Africa. Maybe, maybe, we, maybe we need to start something like that. The good thing about it is that, you, you know, you can, if, you, if there's not, not one near you, you can create it, but usually they're in walking distance mm. and it's a community. So if something does happen, you know, hyperinflation, fiat currency that, you know, doesn't work, there is a shutdown of financial services, there is, you know, any of that happen. You've got a number of people yeah. who you, you already know because the, the worst thing is to feel alone. Yeah. And even if you don't have immediate need because you've got some cash at home, you've got, I don't know, you've got some silver coins or whatever you, you want to use as alternative means, um, just the fact that you know there's like-minded people in walking distance from you, it's a huge relief mentally and um, it's great for, for, um, for, for facing possibly a very long journey ahead of us. So that's just one way I can talk about now. I'm sure many more will will mm. form. Robin Monotti, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Uh, my pleasure. I hope it was uh, it was useful um, and it wasn't it, too repetitive. No, it well, was it was wonderful. Thank you for your time. Thank you. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warface, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com. 